Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Monday, March 15th, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, we're going to get down to business. We're going to discuss a couple of very important topics based on things that are going on in the world. We're going to try to pull in information and experiences from a variety of viewpoints, making sure that all of our discussion treats ideas with respect, no matter where they come from, keeping everything in good faith, doing our best to keep ourselves and our audience adequately informed. Are we going to defeat the Han? Yes, because we're getting down to business. Right, exactly. The the reference. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> I know things. Um yeah, we we recognize that we are only human. We don't know everything. Our viewpoints are not the only one that matters and we don't come from the ivory tower, which is like a succinct way to just say all the things that I said before. So, hey Evan. Yeah, Joe. What do you want to talk about today? Well, I do want to talk about a very sad and serious topic to lead off this episode. And that is uh, a bit of national news that has come out of my college town of Bowling Green. Tragically, a 20-year-old student at the university died last week after an incident of hazing at a local fraternity house. The 20-year-old student's name was Stone Foltz, and he went to a party at an off-campus house of Pi Kappa Alpha, also known as the Pikes, and as early reports have indicated, he was brought back to his own house, and his roommate immediately knew that he was not okay, he was violently ill, eventually he had to be rushed to the hospital where he was put on life support, and then it was this time last week where his parents made the unbelievably difficult decision to remove him from life support, uh, allow him to pass, and donate his organs. It has since come out that the incident that led to the alcohol overconsumption which caused his death was likely the result of a hazing ritual at the Pike fraternity. So this has sparked a huge uproar both on campus and around the world. I I first heard about this story from an email that BGSU sent out to all BGSU email accounts. Um, So they're clearly taking it very seriously. And then the second place I found out about it was the Washington Post. So Mm. there is. Yeah, I know. Right. Um, That's that's never good is when you go to a a mid-sized public university and then they end up in the Washington Post because a kid was forced to drink himself. I just guess anything when you find out something from your, you know, close contact proximity and then and then like, oh, like hell, a lot of I mean. A lot of the stuff when the Kenosha riots were happening, it was like that for me. Yeah, like, yeah. Like thing that happened next door, and I was like, "Oh fuck, this is getting national attention." <laughs> yeah. So I I had that exact experience. Um, so I can offer a little bit of local perspective on sort of the nature 
of the climate on the campus of BGSU. Um, and then maybe we can have a little bit bigger discussion. But um, first of all, I would like to say that I, I was not in a social fraternity at BG. I was in a couple of honoraries. I was in the speech and debate honorary Pi Kappa Delta. So that was a, a little scary when they were like, this kid died at Pi Kappa Alpha. <gasps> I know. Uh -huh. Yeah, there was kind of like a, a breath holding moment. Um, but yeah. Um, but I, I did occasionally interact socially with people who were in fraternities or attend parties where there were sponsorships by fraternities. And I mean, it's it's a very uh, heavily alcohol infused culture. That is not a surprise to anyone. But um, I do know that this specific fraternity, the Pikes, already had a very bad reputation on the BGSU campus for, you know, hazing and sexual assault and that kind of stuff. Just just not not the most well received. And and kind frat. of a, a outside of your your university as well. Um I I think it it the the university fraternity conversations are always so stupid, but it's there's the generalization that all pikes are assholes and just yeah like, okay kind of shitty <laughs> sure that uh that would track with what i know and so that's good to get a confirmation there um if you're a yeah, pike so. and disagree with that characterization please email us at podcast at adequately com. yeah let us know call us out um but at, at the end of the day um you know I would say that the odds of this happening are low, but nonetheless it happened. And now we have had a young life cut short um, because he was forced to drink alcohol beyond what his body could tolerate to fit in socially and be part of an arbitrary social group that serves little to no other social function. So that's what I'm saying. Even if the risk of this happening is low, you know, what, what are the benefits of maintaining fraternity, fraternity and sorority culture? You know, people talk about how there's philanthropy, which, um, you know, could be easily done by an explicitly philanthropic organization and not have to go through the extra layer of Greek life. Um, I mean, I've never thought very highly of social Greek organizations. I think that it is they're lightning rods for inequality and they often tolerate and cover up the worst abuses that can happen within a party and culture. I, I, I just think that they obtain a lot of institutional resources and don't give a lot back to the general community. I know that people who are involved feel a strong sense of attachment and feel like they get a lot out of it. But um, I, I don't think that on balance, it's a good trade-off to continue to have Greek life be such a central part of university life. Uh, especially when every once in a while you end up with an absolute tragedy like what happened at BG. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember reading and I read the New York Times article about it, but they uh, they said that the specific thing was that the the whoever's, you know, whatever class of you know, uh, uh, fraternity people. I don't know if he was pledging or, you know, just someone older than him mandated this, but it was like, 
It was like given a handle of booze to drink and had to drink it to do whatever next thing was. And a handle is a fuck ton of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 1.75 liters. Anybody drinking all of that in like, I don't know, any time that's less than a day, you're going to be fucked. And even a day, you're still pretty fucked. Mm-hmm. So like that's it's it's just way too much. And it, you know, in the modern times at where we are right now, it definitely seems kind of, you know, what's the point of these Greek organizations where like it feels like I could conceive some history of these organizations where they really did just start out as just kind of like groups of university students and by nature of what university students used to be like in the way back times most of the time they were well off well to do um so they kind of get the trappings of that you know you have the house and you know you pay dues and all that kind of stuff and you know if it was just kind of strictly a loose affiliation of kids or you know university students who you know, live together and they did things, then that would be one thing, but they get the like official recognition by the university and, you know, and then these hazing things are just real bad and they, you know, they're a cesspool for, you know, partying and all that stuff, which I'm not really against, but it's like, it's just weird to have officially, you uh, Universe or officially recognized by the university institutions that do these sorts of things. And I'm pretty sure like the philanthropy and all that other stuff was really came up as a, as a way to help legitimize it and not a first principle of these organizations. Yeah. yeah. It's window dressing. It's, you know, trying to make an internal change so that an external change doesn't become necessary. And again, I I know that there's a lot of people who feel very strongly about their time that they spent within Greek institutions and it's given them lifelong friends. And that's awesome. But I'm asking here about the trade-offs, you know, what, what are the trade-offs that we face when we give institutional legitimacy and resources to purely or largely social organizations when the social bonds could form organically elsewhere and when the trade-off is, like I said, uh, you know, increased inequality and that's drawing from paying for the party uh, by Elizabeth Armstrong and uh, Armstrong and Hamilton are the authors of that book when the trade-off is the cover-up of sexual assault that happens within fraternities and sororities what what, when the trade-off is this young man's life this puts it the most clearly into view but and and again there I'm sure there are certain fraternities or sororities who are really populated by upstanding people but the broader culture does not seem to contribute anything of specific value to university life and 
I, I'm just nervous that this is going to be a big kerfuffle. And, you know, already the National Pike organization said, oh, we don't tolerate any of this stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. You do. And the university. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep, they do. And the university is launching an official investigation and they suspended the local chapter and they really dramatically took the letters down from the house. But, you know, eventually the the other organizations are going to band together. They're going to fight more important reform and oversight. They're going to say, oh, you know, not all Greeks, blah, 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 blah. People are going to the, the outrage is going to die down and then things are going to go back to normal in the broader university Greek life system. And then another kid's going to die. And I, I just want to know how many college students are we comfortable sacrificing to put up with this system? Um, I think I'm at about my limit. Yeah. Well, it's also just weird that these are like national organizations. Mm. Like it, it it would also be a wholly another thing if this was just like one local organization and not like essentially a franchise of a social organization. <laughs> like uh, it, it it like fraternities or fraternal organizations and hazing deaths like it feels like i don't know tobacco companies and lung cancer or oil companies and talking about climate change it's like it maybe i mean you'll obfuscate you know your responsibility and be like we'll do something but it's like you're 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 not changing any of the fundamentals, you know? Yeah, we'll, we'll have an anti-hazing brochure that we can let the chapter president thumb through, but it's not going to fundamentally change the operations and the systems in place that enable those operations. Yeah. Well, that's also, you know, it's just, it's weird, you know? Like, you know, in, in a social organization, you know, you do kind of, you know, the idea of doing something where you get your licks or something isn't too uncommon, but like, it's just really, you know, this culture that takes it to this extreme. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, like there, there, I'm sure there's plenty of other forms of hazing that are just pretty banal, but forcing, you know, the, the ones around drinking, you know, drinking, human poison you know is mm. um it's not good it's not uh not good no it's not and you know i understand like you were saying joe ritual collective suffering can bring people together but you know the stakes have to be low you know you don't want to actually abuse people to the point of potential death just to have that common experience you know yeah. that's just lunacy <laughs> well you know it is weird how people will be sometimes like i i remember i watched this um i guess it was a youtube video but it was like a documentary put together of dale earnhardt um you know the the greatest you know they say the greatest racer who ever was in nascar and basically what happened was he died 
racing. And after he died, NASCAR, you know, put in a whole lot of safety restrictions in to, you know, make everything safer. And in some ways, the people, you know, (laughs) viewership plummeted because, Mm -hmm. you know, in some ways, the risk of death and the danger of it, while it was tragic, it was also like part of it. I mean, humans are perverse in things like that. Um, yeah, so. blood sport is has a long history within human society, you know? Yeah, and, you know, once it's no longer, like, on the edge, but, you know, I did not have to go through near-death experiences to become friends with my friends. But, um, you know, it's it's just, you know, it's it's something. And, and I, I think... Again, the real kicker is that it's like these officially recognized organizations. Like, Mm -hmm. again, if it was just a loose collective of college students and this happened, it would still be a tragedy, but it would more so be like up to the individuals who were there and those individuals accountable where the whole Greek system sets up a like... I don't know. A chain of accountability. Well, yeah, a chain of accountability, but it sets up a template that, you know, has this risk on the end of it that, you know, some kids may just fucking die. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's the template for behavior instead of it coming through accident of some, you know, group of people's own, you know, imagination. Um, So it's just, it's just weird. It's weird and it's sad. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing that I feel is just um, sadness. You know, I know that there's a family that is really hurting. There's an entire campus community that's really hurting to to have to experience this loss together and have it put in the national spotlight. And then especially to feel like it was so preventable and i mean i i didn't know the 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 student personally you know uh he's well younger than me mm-hmm. but i'm i'm sure that i knew a lot of people like him yeah. and you know even, hell even if he was the the person least like me on the face of the earth doesn't deserve right to die and especially I, I'm I'm hoping, but skeptical that this will become a way for real reform to take place, and I think it kind of involves um, giving the Greek organizations less institutional power, and then giving them less allure either that or retaining the institutional power and encouraging more oversight so that when cultures like what the pikes had developed arise someone is held accountable and something changes before a death brings it to national attention yeah yeah well and i you know thinking of this i'm also brought back to um I'm re-listening through the book, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers, which I really highly recommend. It's a. It's I haven't a, read that yet. You think, I, you think I should check that out? It's a good one. There, okay. It, it delves into a lot of themes that 
<laughs> you know, it's almost like a um, retcon of a bunch of stuff that happened in the 2010s and like delving into it. And it's it has some very interesting insights. But one of the cases that one of the things that he um, went into was the Brock Turner case. Um, this guy who was a university student and um, raped a girl behind a dumpster. But, you know, part of that was an exploration of alcohol in universities today. And it is also, you know, it's part of it because like, as Malcolm was describing, you know, when he went to college and all that stuff um, and, you know, earlier, you know, in, or, you know, before Yavin and I showed up on the scene, um, you know, a lot of drinking was mostly just kind of beer and the guys would drink. And then like, there was kind of, a, you know, a social stigma around women drinking, at least, you know, getting drinking till drunk out in public. So that didn't happen as much, but now we're in a situation where, um, you know, there's just a lot more drinking and hard alcohol involved is involved, which just magnifies it. I mean, people can still get plenty fucked up on beer, but once you start introducing hard alcohol, it, the, the time scale on it just gets quicker because it's more concentrated. And then we're also in a world, I mean, this doesn't have to do with necessarily the, uh, you know, the hazing thing, but then also women are also out there drinking to get drunk and, you know, it's, it's, it's just, uh, the alcohol culture in college campuses these days is like, you know, it's a babone. It, it, it's almost like not people treat it as not interfacing with the real problems, but there, it does seem like there may have been a shift and it's like not great. Does Gladwell explicate what that shift was precipitated by or um or does he just kind of acknowledge the trend i think i i i know i i don't remember explicitly if he acknowledges the trend of or explains the trend of beer to hard alcohol but there are some thoughts on why women are getting or young women are more likely to just go and get drunk publicly um you know it's part of a kind of feminist move you know it's like if the if the guys are gonna go do it we want to go do it too and sure yeah um and i'm not stopping them but you know that was also in the you know trying to very delicately pick apart a rape case which i bought into but you know i don't want to start going into all these and mischaracterize it because it was a very delicate dance in the book so um, yeah i mean brock brock turner is a rapist and he he alone is responsible for that but read the book so anyway but brock turner's a rapist and i you know not not super interested in the other stuff but that's not really what this is about (laughs) well now we're gonna have a showdown no um (laughs) so yeah people dying before they should not good especially when they're young yeah, so I mean, I, I I think I've said all I really came to say on the matter. I'm I'm sad that Stone Foltz uh, will no longer be alive on the earth. I'm I'm sad that 
this is how my school uh, gets national recognition. I'm sad that I don't think anything will change. And I, I certainly um, wish him and his family well as they try to pick up the pieces and, and, and live the rest of their lives. Yep. It's sad. So, Joe. Evan. What do you want to talk about? What do I want to talk about? Well, so I wanted to do kind of a recap on some of the things that we had talked about on this show and that happened last year. Mostly, I wanted to look back on the kind of George Floyd cases, George Floyd and Jacob Blake cases of last year. And if you don't remember, I mean, there were, there was a lot of 2020 that happened. So I can forgive if you don't remember everything. So George Floyd was the man who in Minneapolis was, um, knelt on by officer Derek Chauvin and was killed basically over the possibility or the alleged use of a counterfeit $20 bill, which ended up sparking national protests. And Jacob Blake was the man in Kenosha who was shot in the back uh, seven or nine times um, for resisting arrest um, for disorderly conduct, apparently. And that also created um, some more protests and uh, did some crazy things in Kenosha, which, you know, we did a podcast about. Um, so you were living in Kenosha at the time. Yeah, it was crazy. I lived about a mile away from where the thing happened. So it, you know, those were really big things. And, um, you know, there have been some recent news in this. So just recently, the city of Minneapolis awarded a $27 million settlement to the family of George Floyd, um, which is actually, they kept saying it was a first of its kind, but it's like they actually even awarded this before the trial of the officers happened, which is often not the case. So the city felt that, you know, there was a very true wrong that happened and, um, you know, weren't trying to wait out to see the results of the case um, in trial to award the family this uh, this uh, font, this money. And then also the trial of Kyle or no, the trial of trial of Derek Chauvin. Um, is actually going to be starting here in the next couple of weeks. He's being charged with second degree murder and manslaughter. And then also a case of third degree um, murder. I don't know how it's all planning out, um, but the trial there is uh, set to begin soon. So, and then the trial of the other four officers and I don't know. It's just, uh, it does at least at this point seems to be the procedure of justice in that scenario is happening. Like what we would hope would happen in a, a breach of injustice like that is happening. But 
I still just remember that like so much <laughs> of the protests was hoping that we would never have to do something like this, but at the very least it's happening. Um, yeah. And then also, um, I did some follow up on Jacob Blake. Um, it, it was interesting because I think at the time you and I figured that this was going to be like a much more ongoing thing, but it really kind of turned out that, you know, some media types were like, it seemed like Kenosha was the turning point where the kind of Trump campaign was figured out there wasn't a uh, much else to juice out of the kind of white nationalist fear mongering, um, thing. So they kind of moved away from it, but what ended up happening with Jacob Blake is that, you know, he hasn't really come out with his story or been a major player. And it, it turns out that they, um, the, uh, state reached a deal with him where, um, they drop the charges of sexual assault that he was supposedly being arrested for at the time of his shooting, um, in order for him to plead guilty for a dishonorably conduct charge. And it's just kind of been left at that. Um, so that's where those two are at. Yeah. I was going to say that, um, that that's the striking thing about the Jacob Blake case to me is just how we haven't heard any big public comment from him. I, I thought that as soon as we found out that he survived, he would have his attorneys in the media telling his story and it just never really came out, which leads me to believe, you know, either the the story will not paint him in a favorable light or there has been otherwise pressure exerted on him to contain his story. Um, either way, it's strange to me. It's strange that finally we have a victim of a an interaction with the police survive and we finally have the opportunity to hear that side of the story and we're not getting it. I think that there should be a big interest for the public to let Jacob Blake speak and, and hear his side of the events that took place and his perspective on it um, so that we can get a little bit fuller understanding of what happened for better or for worse. Yeah. I, I, I have a feeling that it just kind of end up being that maybe it was seen by the, well, one thing was, is that they, uh, Wisconsin declined to charge the officer. Um, they looked at their evidence and, they said at least that they didn't feel like that they could make a case or, you know, it, that you know, there wasn't so much there uh, for whatever reasons. Um, but the, it may also just be the case that I don't know. It seemed like at the time uh, the Blake family was not like big fans of all the attention that was being had on it. And since, you know, they may have gotten a rare opportunity where this big flare up happened and the whole world kind of moved on 
So they kind of got to not be part of the big media ecosystem again, you know, have the big spotlights on their lives and who knows, who knows? Yeah. Maybe, maybe there'll be a, a indie documentary about it, uh, you know, in like 20 years. Um, but wow. 20 years. I, I hope we can get it done a little soon. Joe, what are you doing? Can we, can we go back up to Kenosha and uh, produce a documentary on the cheap? I just, I just bought a house. Well, just you'll still this. have your house. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh, there's only two people in the world who understand. Yeah. It's you and I. <laughs> um, but, and then also just kind of as an even more follow up, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, who um, was the Kenosha shooter, not the officer who shot Jacob Blake, but the kid who was out on the streets with an assault rifle who shot and killed two people. Um, his trial is currently being delayed. Um, both legal teams were seeking additional time to build their cases. So, which it's weird. That kid has become like a, I don't know, the, the, the right wing media ecosystems have their own narratives and like Kyle is he's like a cause celeb. Yeah. He's, he's like a folk hero or you know folk victim or whatever and you know it was really just a weird time (laughs) like even being there and you know people who i knew you know had some you know interesting opinions i remember one guy i was talking to was like these people you know i have friends who have guns and i i'm like and you know if you if they have guns you you don't really do what they, you know, uh, you do what they say, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, you know, does anyone just have the right to go out with a gun and do whatever they want, you nope. know? And that was kind of the, the fear of that was, it was like, do all these militiamen get to just kind of have immunity? Like, do they, are they protecting their castle when they're roaming the streets with a, a you know, a, a firearm? Um, but you know, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, it's just baffling to me. I can't imagine. And I, I'm not a legal scholar. I don't know if this is going to fly. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know, but I, I just think it's, it's kind of impossible to claim. Um, yeah, I showed up somewhere with a deadly weapon. And then when people reacted in fear, I got afraid and killed them with my deadly weapon. So I'm the aggrieved party who was acting in self-defense. It's bonkers. It's bonkers to me. I don't buy it at all. Well, and it's also just weird that, I mean, this is pulling up old things um, that aren't super pressing right now, but it's like, you know, the old, the whole, you know, good guy with a gun thing. You know, I don't, I'm not comfortable with anybody out there when I see people with guns in public, like hell, even police officers, I see them with their gun. I'm like, Oh shit. I know if they want to, you know, if they, if they get some whiff of something that could just come right out and I don't have any control over that. 
No, th- that's a really good point, actually, Joe, because this is something that happened. Um, remember, this was a long time ago now, but the the Gabby Giffords shooting where Jared yeah. Lee Loughner attempted to assassinate Gabrielle Giffords. There's a story from that event that uh, is a little bit lost to time. But basically, there was someone at that event who I can't remember if he, he had brought his own weapon or was able to disarm Loeffler and... Um, you know, essentially was was attempting to intervene and had a a firearm directed at Jared Lee Loeffner. And when police arrived at the scene, they almost shot him because they had a report that there was a, you know, an active shooter. And that was the guy with the gun, whether he was good or bad. He almost died because of it. So, yeah, I understand that, you know, if, if there is to be a, a a sort of battle of a shooter and someone trying to stop the shooter it makes sense for the 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 good guy in this sense to have a gun but you know in the sense that we we think the best way to ensure safety is to create a wild wild west scenario i mean that's the overused metaphor yeah but you know to to put more guns in more hands and then hope that the, the good guys win out like they're fucking Gary Cooper. Um, there's a real danger to that. Yeah. But, you know, and I agree with everything that you just said, but it's weird because like the events of last year really got me, you know, kind of changing my view or personal views on guns where I still detest them. And, I believe that, you know, society would be much so much better if we didn't have them. But it's also like I don't see that big radical shift happening. And Mm -hmm. I am very uncomfortable that seemingly the people who I very much disagree with um, are the ones with the guns, Um, you know, I remember the, you know, the armed people who took over the Michigan state capital last Mm -hmm. year, Um, the, you know, the militias who um, showed up in Kenosha or, you know, in other protests around the country where armed people showed up Um, in these scenarios where, you know, there's conflict over, you know, things it it's turning out one side is having way greater proportionate power than they otherwise would have because they show up with guns. So I'm, you know, in, in some ways I end up being like, well, I mean, we're, we're living in a time right now today where the temperature is turned down. Um, you know, things have cooled off a bit in those fronts, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, what if it came to it that, you know, a, a bunch of uh, right wing extremists were, you know, showing up with their guns on their chests? And it's not like I'm making this up like they show up with their guns um, to peacefully, quote, protest things, you know, as a like a show of force that they're there. And it's like, you know, am I? You know, am I just going to stand by and be unable to answer to that? Are the mass people going to be able to affront to that? You know, it's 
It just got me thinking. Maybe I, you know, maybe I should get a gun. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I, I understand where you're coming from. I really do. And I think it just boils down to how realistically you assess that threat and then what the response you think is that's the most justified and i think that there are so many variables that factor into that that um i don't have a good personal stance on it and it's one of the cases where i think i have to take my out of it myself out of it and say ah shit i don't know punt but like i said i understand what you're saying and where you're coming well and from i i don't even like that i'm reaching this conclusion because then in a way i'm validating the concerns of the people that i disagree with mm-hmm. like i'm validating the reasons that they use for getting one and i don't necessarily agree with it but it's kind of like you know if <laughs> If if one group uses their hardline tactics and the other just allows themselves to be steamrolled by it, what's even the point? Well, this is the classic arms race dilemma, right? It's, yeah. N- no country theoretically wants to have to use nuclear weapons, but if my top rival has nuclear weapons, I got to make sure that I have a deterrent. And I think it's uh, certainly sad and certainly cynical to apply that same logic to your own countrymen when it comes to the personal decision of gun ownership. But again, I cannot tell you that it's invalid. Yeah. It's just, you know, I, I think it's absolute lunacy when people say, you know, they... They're like uh, the field of, you know, they're the federal government ain't going to take my guns. And, you know, it, it often seems like the only thing that they would use the second amended rights afforded to them to protect the right that is gun ownership. But, yeah, you know, and but then again, it also seemed like they used it to, um, I don't know, try to assert the right that they have the right to go and sit down at a Chili's during a pandemic, um, which was a weird chapter of last year. Yeah. So I it's it's something where my thinking is not concrete, but it is definitely not where it was two years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, It has evolved and. I don't know. Again, we're just kind of in an arms race and it's like, what do we do? Do you uh, de-arm and make yourself the 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 person who could be preyed upon? <laughs> um, and I don't know. I don't know. How, and my, you know, my first principles do not clearly guide me in this situation. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess maybe my th- overarching thought on it is what keeps us safe really in the world is social trust and social cohesion. You know, if, if we truly believe that those around us mean us no harm and we will not do harm to others, we don't need guns. We, hell, we don't even need locks, Mm -hmm. but we're not there. I'm, that's not the, the world in which we live. So maybe my question is is to take 
the broader view. And I'm not saying this isn't factor into your thinking. I'm, I'm sure you're going to agree with what I'm saying. Mm. But how can we build a world with more social cohesion and more social trust so that we don't have to have these more dire, more cynical discussions? Maybe that's maybe that's what I really am trying to look into here. Yeah. Well, it also helps when the, you know, the chief divider in the country uh, doesn't have Twitter anymore. It, yeah, um, that's, that's been helps. something that we've <laughs> been something we've been remarking on. Um, it just feels like the the constant level of uh, hair on fire has gone way down. Yeah, we've had time to put it out for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and it's also just. I don't know. Interesting. You know, ever since those events that I recapped on, you know, there was the defund the police movement. And I think today I'm even kind of a little bit further away from that conceptualization than I was back then. Um, You know, I definitely believe that there is a social value to policing but that the ways that it has been going on in the United States are not great. But like, I don't believe that the project of less money for police nets greater social outcomes. But, but then again, I'm not one who I, I don't have a very clear path forward, but I mean, even the places that wanted to do it. I mean, Minneapolis had voted that they were going to disband their police department. Um, but that just fell away. Um, they (laughs) kind of, once it became that they actually had to do the details of it, it just kind of fell apart, um, and has been stalled. So I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but I don't know, you know, it's like, it's weird the whole criminal because we want our officers to not do the nitpicky things like, you know, we all hate getting, you know, pulled over for, you know, know, having a tail light out and, you know, feel like we're getting roughed about, you know, if you just given warnings for things like that, that, you know, solves most of our ills. And then also officers acting out in ways like Derek Chauvin did and the officers who watched like just escalating way too far for the, the offense, the alleged offense that George Floyd committed. But then also like our country has, um, you know, we do a lot more, it's seemingly a lot more murders per capita and a lot of those murders go unsolved. I think there's like a nation nationwide, like 60% clearance rate on, uh, on murder investigations, which is very, I mean, I don't know how it stands, you know, across, you know, comparatively to other countries, but it's not somewhere where I would like it to be at. Yeah, it's, it's below the ideal of what you yeah. could do. And, you know, and there's a lot of things having to do with like sexual assault, like, you know, it comes out all the time. This is a story that happens a fair amount, like 
where there's a uh, someone is sexually assaulted. They do the rape kit. The rape kit doesn't get ran through, so they don't actually get the guy, and the guy goes and does a whole bunch more rapes afterwards. And, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a question of enough police or too much or, you know, at least in that specific scenario, but it's like, you know, it, it seems like policing just needs the eye of the modernization that a lot of realms of society have, you know, given up to, but it's kind of been resistant and police, you know, it's police unions are part of that, but then it's also pay packages for, you know, police officers. And it's, it's just a whole lot of mess of things that need to get sorted out that are all kind of came to a head and we're kind of on the other end now, but, or like, you know, it's not as contentious right today as it was about a year ago, but I don't know. It's just kind of, I mean, I, I am one for metering out these, you know, neat little reforms and, you know, making sure that things are getting better, but I, I, I just don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's exceedingly difficult um, because, you know, th- there's kind of two conversations that we have to pull apart. One is what should a justice system look like and then the second one is how can we make our justice system look better mm-hmm. and so i understand the impulse the, the defund the police as a concept comes from the second and it is very sadly but not without merit looking at the idea that our current framework of justice has uh, you know, racism baked into all aspects of it. And so the idea is the system is negative, and so we have to reduce the influence of the system to reduce harm. And on that grounds, there is a logic to it. But obviously, sometimes this can go too far. And there are many instances, in fact, where, you know, we should give enforcement agencies more funding. I think specifically of the IRS. Budget cuts to the IRS are, in a sense, defunding the police. It's just that the criminals who are getting off are white collar, mm-hmm. and so nobody talks about it in that fact. But well, that's and hell, the last six months, the the beat you the gate yeah the beat Iglesias was on was like. Um, actually without state and local funding from the federal government, the Republicans are the real ones trying to defund the police, but he's not wrong. He's absolutely correct. Um, you know, for one, if, if any listeners, if anyone uses the term blue state bailout, just write them off. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah. There, the money is going out to states and municipalities, regardless of the political affiliation of their leaders. Red states need just as much help as blue states. The the mythology that somehow the federal government is just packing pork into democratic coffers has been thoroughly debunked. Don't worry about it. But yeah, you know, if if we don't bail out state and local governments who have budgetary shortfalls from logical restrictions imposed by the coronavirus, then we are defunding the police. At least understand the choice that you're mm-hmm. making. You're defunding a lot of other things as well. Um, 
But uh, kind of to get to get back, it, it can go too far, this idea. For example, uh, I, I kind of brought this up to Joe briefly in the pre-show, but there's a, a documentary that is on Amazon Prime right now called Time about the long-term effects of incarceration on one specific family. But I found this movie to be absolutely ridiculous because their claim is that this man who robbed a bank, held people at gunpoint, and made the world less safe, should never have faced any consequences for his actions. That he never should have been imprisoned, despite the fact that they admitted he was guilty, and his actions were violent and harmed people around him. Mm -hmm. So, clearly, that's bonkers. I want a system where bank robbers go to jail. Like, come on. Um, And so... You know, it, it it comes from a very real place of hurt and legitimately lived racism. And I can never delegitimize, delegitimize that experience or try to police someone's response to that. But it's just that there's so many factors going on. And I think another thing is sort of a, a fatigue that it feels like not enough real reform has ever happened. I know. I I acknowledge that's part of it. Like, um, it definitely seems like, um, activists or people who care about the issue, their willingness to go along with more extreme prescriptions for the issue has come from a place where it felt like these issues kept happening and nothing was happening about it. Like, there is a whole wrath of uh, books and stuff that came out in response to the Ferguson protests and, uh, you know, the uh, killing of Eric Gardner um, that happened like what in 2013, 2014. Like, you know, I, I talking to strangers, the book I just mentioned, it's talking about that, this book that I'm uh, listening to right now, a conflict is not abuse was talking about it. Like that was a, uh, you know, a lightning rod for a lot of this stuff and, you know, nothing really came of that. And then this new round of stuff happened and it, you know, it was the anger that nothing was really happening. And I, I understand that. I understand that. It's just, yeah, so uh, it's kind if of, if anything, yeah, yeah, go ahead. It's just kind of like, what do you do? And it's obvious at this point that, you know, we had those big movements and it, you know, it's, uh, you know, you got to have in a way buy-in from the institutions who have the power and right now the institutions that have the power in respects to those arenas are not bought into your ideas and are actively offended by a lot of the activists speak, um, which I don't, you know, I don't feel is super valid, but it is at least valid in their own existence. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's also I, I, just to kind of incorporate a little bit of what's going on in my community. So, um, the city of Indianapolis, the city county board, because um, that's kind of how our government works, is that it's Marion County in Indianapolis, so it's kind of it's, it's like a joint government. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they passed legislation that would give civilians majority control of the police oversight board, but the state lawmakers 
are currently working on legislation which would reverse and overrule the local decision and make it so that civilians cannot have majority control of police oversight boards. So it, it's just tough when there are so many conflicting and at times overriding political interests that even if a community wants to make a change, if their state government disagrees, they can just overrule it. Yeah. And that's something that I, I'm learning happens a lot in Indianapolis because we're a solidly blue city in a solidly red state that the state guys always just try to fuck with us and like just undo whatever we decide to do. Mm -hmm. um, so that's annoying. That's going to be fun living here and trying uh -huh. to organize politically. Um, but um, yeah, more, more to the point is that, you know, what, what do we need? Do we need a federal guideline that overrules even what the states can do? Uh, maybe. But what does it look like? There's not consensus. Well, and this also stems back to conversations that we've had before where the United States system of government, like nobody would just kind of naturally, you know, think up of our systems for things as we do it today with this like really unorganized power structure um, mm -hmm. between different jurisdictions. Like not to say that the whole thing is rotten, but, you know, it's kind of crazy that we give the authority to administer state law to local governments and then like a local government can make a decision. But if like the state government doesn't like that, then they can pass a legislation that says nah. And <laughs> it's just weird. Like you would think that state law would be administered by state law officers, but it's not the case. I mean, there are mm -hmm. sheriffs, which are to the county level, but even that, you know, and then, but, and there's a lot of talk that, you know, sheriff, you know, offices don't have as much of an issue because the sheriff is elected, um, in some ways, um, you know, they're still held accountable where police chiefs are appointed by the mayor and there's kind of this ambiguity, but then I also go back on my you know, the democracy for realists and the kind of, you know, somebody else put out a thing that was like 10% less democracy, but it's like, yeah, you know, is, you know, is one of the right reforms here to make all the, you know, uh, heads of, uh, law enforcement agencies up for election, or is it that we should have it at the state level instead of the local level or at the county level? Like there, there's a lot of questions here. And, you know, I feel like also with the administration of, you know, justice as, you know, the, the judicial system as well, where it's like, you know, the, again, state law is administered at a local level where the judge that administers state law is voted in or appointed by local officials or people. And that just feels very weird to me. Um, mm -hmm. If you think about it conceptually, like, you know, there's a way back time where, you know, it was hard to get between locations. The state governments didn't have a whole lot of power or, you know, ability to assert power um, capacity. So, you know, it made sense to, 
you know, nominate the guy locally who would best be able to judge things and, you know, would be able to have, you know, uh, insights in the locale and better be able to administer justice. But once we get to the society that we have today, you know, having it so that, you know, the same laws are enforced differently you know, the same laws that apply to everyone enforced differently just based on where you're at just feels weird. Um, it does. And, and not super just. So I feel like there's a shakeup that really needs to happen but isn't quite happening. And, and, you know, we're, you know, since we're in the thick of it, we get mired in this tit for tat kind of thing. And, you know, and, you know, we're upset at cops and then people will say all cops are bastards. And I'm like, I don't know. I get what you're saying. And, you know, you could have a nuanced conversation with me. I just don't know about that specific talking point. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's all just complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it is good. I think though, I appreciate you for bringing this all back up, Joe, because I think that, a year ago there was just so much emotion and you know there's there still is and should be but i i do think that we're both able to be a little bit more clear-eyed evaluating things with the benefit of some hindsight and some context so uh, i yeah, think realize, what we're both kind of saying is uh don't don't know a whole lot still <laughs> yeah realizing what we're saying at the time maybe wasn't what we truly believe <laughs> Um, or, you know, what parts of the discourse are, were truly good and what not, because, you know, I, again, it, it kind of feels like now that Biden's in office, I don't know, just, this is probably, you know, some people would see this as a gotcha moment, but I feel like less of a need to hold the harder lines of certain, you know, polarized topics of times you know, from back mm. then, like, you know, can kind of admit maybe things went a little too far. Maybe I didn't fully believe that thing. Maybe it was just acting upon an emotion of a feeling of grievance. And, you know, now that I'm not actively feeling that grievance, I can acknowledge that, you know, maybe that wasn't everything. And, you know, who knows? It's just just interesting. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully you all find it interesting. Otherwise, you may have turned us off by now. Yeah, you know, I feel like my recap wasn't too structured. It may have been a little boring, but, you know, here we are. Hopefully this discussion was good and lively and, you know, at least pique your interest. <laughs> but I know this is a topic a lot of people feel very passionately about. And it would be interesting to hear your point of view if that's something you would be willing to share, listener. Um, I agree. There are 13 of you. Somebody has an opinion. I mean, you've <laughs> probably all <laughs> you know, participated in, in feedback, which we appreciate. But, you know, it, it's kind of now that things are turned down a bit and we're not in the thick of it. It's kind of like, well, what what are we actually going to do? You know, how are, how are we going to go about this and what's the best way? And then also in the context of the political considerations, 
you know, we, you know, at some point we kind of be, want to be like, fuck considering the political considerations, but it's never going to happen if you do. And, you know, even in a case where, you know, we keep coming back to this in a place where, uh, you know, the authoritarian, um, you know, real orange man, bad scenario and, you know, mobilized many people who are mostly on everyone who could be on the kind of democratic side, it was still a narrow victory. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, it's really that, you know, there, there isn't just the, the progressive myth, the urban legend that, you know, just, we're going to stick to our guns, say the things that, you know, say the most clear eyed version of whatever we want to say, and we'll just win dominantly and enact it all. I, it's just, we're going to have to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is the thing, figuring it out. Yeah. And, you know, we try to offer some perspectives and some opinions that we've heard to, help ourselves and help you all figure it out. But really, um, as always, this is a a plea that if you feel strongly about something, find other people in your community who feel strongly and work towards a common goal. Um, I I read a book, Politics is for Power by Aton Hirsch. And even though I found his writing style really pedantic and (laughs) uh, not, not as, not as magnanimous as I was hoping it would be his, his, ultimate conclusion has stuck with me that you know as entertaining as it is to be on twitter and have political hot takes and talk about politics with your friends um what are we really doing if we're not building towards something constructive and i know it's hard especially with uh coronavirus not quite done although it's close but um you know i'm hoping that when this gets out uh, when, when, when we're out of the woods, we will all be willing to form connections in our community to become advocates for what matters to us. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we can, uh, we can do that. So, uh, Evan, you got anything else you want to say? All right. So Evan, what's our, what's our quick end segment? All right, so the Evan Kelly Awards, also known as the Evies, my sixth annual uh, Oscar ripoff is here. So you can check those out on my blog, midwesternperspective.com, uh, or find it on Facebook. Y'all, y'all know me. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but Don't yeah, so we've got the illusion. That, well, I broke the illusion earlier, so yeah, whatever. Yeah, are, are we breaking the wall or not, Joe? We have to. We have I to break decide. the wall. You don't. <laughs> Well, that is that. That's a decision, at least. Um, so, <laughs> so here are some of the the big titles nominated for multiple awards. We got uh, Nomadland leading the pack with five. Promising Young Woman is big. Trial of the Chicago Seven. First Cow. Onward. The Devil All the Time. I'm thinking of ending things. The Five Bloods. These are just some of the wonderful movies nominated. And Joe, I don't know if you have had a chance to read it over, but mm-hmm. doing a callback to uh this show a while ago there is a j 
Jim's pick category <laughs> in the official race this year. So uh, I'm sure you'll all be Ooh. interested to read what Jim will or will not pick. Who's up for uh, Jim's pick? Well, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna leave that as a mystery. Okay. All right. Well, I I guess I'll have to go read it. Uh, yeah, you should. Yeah, I should. I should support have my journalism. Before. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, what 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 movies did you like this year, Joe? Um, did I watch any movies that came yeah, out na- this year? Yeah. Basically, name a movie, Joe. <laughs> uh, I did watch The Trial of the Chicago Seven, um, mostly because I thought it was going to be a mini series and got tricked into it, and it was a movie. <laughs> it's um, a great movie, though. I liked it. I feel like it could have been a miniseries, but you know, whatever. Um, Aaron Sorkin does not work in miniseries. He works in series or movies. Series or non-series. Um, yeah. Let me see. 1917 was the year before, right? Technically, you probably saw it in 2020, but I did it was see part it of the 2020. 2019 cycle. Well, that's my problem is that I watch everything. <laughs> I don't watch anything new. Um, Nineteen Seventeen is a great movie, though. I yeah, mean, I, I won't. I won't try to stop you there. I listened to the song "No Time to Die," which was the theme for a James Bond movie that didn't come out in 2020, but was supposed to. Oh man. Um. I don't know. Evan, what have I watched? Do you know? Uh, uh, you watched you watched Trial of the Chicago Seven, and you watched In Search of a Flat Earth. I did. That was a YouTube documentary. I liked that. If that could win some awards, that'd be great. And I just wa- rewatched it last night. Did you really? Yeah. I did. <laughs> oh, hey, Joe, I have a pitch for you uh, real, real quick. Um, a movie I just watched, a documentary called Collective that mm. is about the Romanian political crisis, which I knew nothing about going in, but they explain it really well so you can catch up. Um, basically, huge government corruption scandal. The government lost the public trust and got um, ousted and replaced with an interim government of technocrats. Mm. And then sort of the journalistic and political implications that arise from this scenario are chilling and speak to basically the myriad political crises that are going on all over the world right now. I think you would get a lot out of it. Was this about the was this in the 90s or No, this is 2015, like oh, okay. just happened. Yeah. Okay, because if it was about the the war that happened in the 90s, I knew a guy who fought in that. Um Well, that's still a cool connection. Yeah. He he said some weird things. Well, but anyway, <laughs> comes anyway. with the territory. Yeah. Anyway, regardless. Um, now this is me being very bad and not super cosmopolitan of me. But um, is there a lot of subtitles? Yes. Hmm. It is exclusively subtitled. Are you telling me that I actually have to watch the thing I'm watching and not just looking at small screen while big screen on is on in the background? Yes, that is the choice you would have to make when watching this. <sighs> That's a tough choice. If, if it's not for you, I understand, but I think that the language barrier aside, you would get a lot out of the narrative and the implications that arise. Yeah. I wish I could just 
that I I'm back to, uh, kind of being like phone bad, but I don't know what to do with myself about it. Um, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. I, it's just, I don't know. I mean, this is still, you know, keeping this end segment going, but I don't know. Like I want to put my phone down, but then I feel anxiety when I don't have my phone. I know. And, but every once in a while I'll like, I don't know, it will happen where I forget my car and my, or forget my phone in my car. (laughs) And, um, you know, and I go and do something and it's kind of nice, but then I'm also like on edge, like, you know, it's, um, it's kind of like there's an American dad episode where, uh, Roger gets this magical ability to see in the future. Um, and then the family like becomes reliant <laughs> on him and won't yep. even won't do anything without consulting Roger first. And it's kind of like that. But with my phone, it's like this vague notion that like I need to be available and respondent at all times during my awakenedness. And that if my phone is away from me, that's going to be the one moment my mom calls with an emergency or or work, you know, or whatever. I get a cool insight and I got to tweet it right now, or, <laughs> you know, just anything. And and I'm well, what, what does Cal Newport call it? The the hive mind. Yeah, the hyperactive or hyperactive hive mind. Yeah. 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 Um. So. It's just, I, I want to put it down. I want to not be part of it, but then also it's so linked up to how I, you know, and we, you know, experience this world today (laughs) and stuff, stuff. I don't know. This, this whole podcast is, it's tough. We don't know. (laughs) <laughs> that should be the new name of the show it's <laughs> I, this is joe and evan it's called tough it's tough and we don't know but we're going to try and talk about what we do know and what we know about is enough to think we're adequately informed we did it we got full circle yeah so um thanks anthony for the music thank you for listening i'm joe i'm evan Uh, you've been adequately informed or not huh